Welcome to Psychotherapy. I'm Jet Dunlap, and this is episode 36. And it's just me. It's just me and you, baby. Just the two of us. In your car, in your ears, or maybe during a nose bubble bath. Who knows? But this is just us today. And I got a lot to download into your ears. And a lot of stuff that just needed to come off my chest that I haven't been talking about because I've been working on the other episodes that had Gina and I together, and the one that came right after the stand-up. I'm going to talk to you in this episode about what I felt like right after the stand-up, but I'm also going to talk to you about some stuff that I just, when I pressed record, knew I needed to talk to you about. And if you listened to the show before, you know I act on that instinct. Because it served me in the past, and it has been, as far as feedback, the episodes that you folks like the most. So, I talk to you about another portion of what led me into doing comedy to begin with. I give you the roadmap. One of these examples came from a friend of mine that I hadn't even remembered how this drew me towards the stage. Then at the end, I talk about something a little bit mysterious. I believe there is a strong reason for you to do what I did. Do I want you, Susan, who's listening right now, to go up and do stand-up comedy while you're trying to take care of five kids? Of course not, Susan, that's ridiculous, you're busy. What I want you to do, if you choose to, this isn't an obligation. I'll tell you again at the end. I think as humans, we are here to work on that little voice in our head that tells us to do that thing we've always wanted to do. I think denying that is denying our adult evolution. I'm saying when we were born, we were not capable of the things we do today because our parents knew we had to do these certain things to be able to act as humans in an adult world, right? I believe it goes further than that. And I think once your parents are gone, once the college professor is gone, there is a voice inside your head that tells you what to do next. I conquered a lot of fears because that voice in my head was loud enough for me to hear. And the funny thing is a lot of it may have had to do with my religious upbringing. I don't necessarily subscribe to the ideals that I learned at that age, but it gave me an understanding of being able to hear something inside of me that was whispering. Does that sound crazy? Does it sound like I'm hearing voices to you? Well, here's the thing about hearing voices. If you just asked yourself, hey, is Jack crazy? Do I hear voices too? That was a voice asking you that. You just had a conversation with yourself. Whatever that thing is that's talking to you right now, call it your brain, call it intuition, call it the Heavenly Father. If you like to, that is giving you some kind of insight that I may be trying to guide you in following occasionally. Jet, get off of your high horse and get to the laughs already, they say. Well, here's the deal. This is how I felt, this is where I was, and this is what you get. It's called psychotherapy. So, I'm going to bring you into the episode instead of rambling on, enjoying the sound of my voice. Episode 36 is going to start right now. go up on stage, I look around, and I go into autopilot. Kind of cool when your name is Jet. I talk about how this was something I knew I had to do my entire life, or as much of it as I can remember. And I had a couple stories brought up to me 
the most important ones you can get in my experience are from that special person in your life if you're lucky enough to have them that has known you almost as long as you've known you and that person for me who you've heard about a lot is my buddy Chris Coy and he and I were talking the other day after one of my episodes and he said it's really interesting to me what examples you cited as you first being funny or your first introduction to the idea that you could be funny on purpose, which is what I mentioned in an episode, a couple episodes ago, where I talked about my Uncle John and myself at Farmer's Market. I think in my memory, the ones that are going to come forward are A, random, I, I can't control what I think of, and B, the ones that are closest to my heart at the moment. And the reason the one about Uncle John was so prevalent was that that was the first time I remember being funny on purpose to an adult that I really respected and had what I felt at the time, his finger on the pulse of what was relevant and what was funny. And I had a level of sophistication to know that if John thought it was funny, it wasn't just because it was a fart joke in class. But then Chris reminded me of something that I really didn't give enough credit to and probably was far more relevant in my evolution into comedy. I was... Who cares what age, right? I mean, you guys aren't sitting there going, wait a second, what year was this? Let's say I was 10 or 11. No, I was older than that. <laughs> I just said, who cares what age? I do. I care about this stupid stuff. I was 12 or 13, so the early 90s. We were playing a handball tournament. Eric Brandenburg, Clint McKay, Brandon McKay, Chris Coy, Stephen Dunlap, myself, maybe James Cipriati. Big handball tournament off the garage door of Eric Brandenburg's parents' house. He had a great pool. And this was some multi-day tournament that just the boys on the block made up. Now, I was not the most athletic guy. I was one of the toughest. I could take a lot of punches and a lot of punishment, more so than the rest of the dudes. The old days of like game on, game off, like you saw in Wayne's World, moving the cones, car, that kind of thing. Very Americana kind of a childhood when it came to that. And all the bad stuff that comes with it too. When I first moved in the neighborhood, one of the neighbors came over and punched me in the face because it was jailhouse rules and that's just how it was. But who's going to change their past? And for better or worse, it made me tougher than I already was, which was pretty damn tough. I take you back to Eric Brandenburg's garage. We're playing handball and for some reason, the fates were looking down on me and I was winning. I was winning. This tree trunk legged, awkward, you know, weirdo boy was winning. And it was the last day. And for some reason or whatever reason I can't remember at the time, uh, you will forgive me because this was probably 28 years ago. This was Chris retelling it, but then it sparked my memory. I said, I have to leave. And everyone was like, Jet, you can't leave. This is like your big chance. You're going to be king of the block. That's how you become king of the block. And I said, I have to. It's, it's almost time for the Simpsons. And they're like, are you kidding me? Blah, blah, blah. It'll be on again. You can't go. Don't leave. And I'm like, I got to get home to the Simpsons. I can't miss it. I left this tournament and I left what would have been my first opportunity at King of the Block to go watch my precious Simpsons. The Simpsons had such a big role in my comedy that Chris Coy said that when he left to go to Colorado for a long time, this is at the end of my grade school, his mother lived there. His father lives in Los Angeles. He was my neighbor about three or four doors down. And he left. He said, none of my jokes were funny. He said, when he came back, 
when we went to high school together, I was hilarious. And he credits my watching religiously of The Simpsons and other things like that, something I studied. I remember when I was that same age, my dad decided um, that my laugh was so offensive that I no longer could watch television with the family. Now, we didn't have a television in the bedrooms because it just would have interfered with our study, and that was very important to my parents. I didn't study. I just did nothing. Now, even though my laugh was atrocious, I couldn't miss my Simpsons. So in this tiny house we had in the San Fernando Valley, there was this 50s-style half a hallway that came up to, like, your shoulder, and it had, like, stacks where you could put, I don't know, your (laughs) glass grape ornaments and all that weird stuff they used to have between the living room and the hallway. So you there's kind of like a almost a bar. And what I did because I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons with the family is I would take my tape recorder, put it on top of this bar, press record, slip it up so my dad couldn't see it so he wouldn't get mad. And I sat up against this wall and listened to The Simpsons and kept myself from laughing out loud. But more importantly, I was recording it. So then later, when I was walking around the neighborhood or whatever, I could throw on my Sony headphones and listened to The Simpsons. And I listened to the same episodes over and over and over and over and over again. And I never thought about it as a student of comedy, obviously. I just knew this is something I liked and, you know, gave me an escape from reality. As a side note, but it's also kind of funny. My parents were betting on horses and their horses were their children when I was that age. And uh, they had all their money on Stephen. And he was a safe bet. Stephen's my younger brother. He was a straight A student or, you know, I think idiots like me think everyone who's smarter than them have straight A's, but he was a very good student, very good athlete, and uh, we're not even two years apart. So my parents had all their eggs in this uh, Stephen basket. So they would let him watch TV later than I was allowed to because I was Mongo. Mongo had to go in the other room and go to sleep. Stephen was allowed to watch ER with my mom. Now, why was Stephen allowed to watch ER? This is kind of a adult program and it's later than we usually stay up and Mongo was asleep in his room or doing whatever Mongo does and my mom and my dad usually my mom would sit there and watch Stephen watching ER this was because they were hoping Stephen would be a doctor and they didn't have that same hope for old Mongi the Mongo so he was allowed to stay up late and watch ER he was also allowed to watch the Simpsons because his laugh wasn't atrocious So there was a little favor put on old Steve-O. However, I will say in Stephen's defense, I did get more attention. I went to educational therapy for like 10 years because with my dyslexia, I had to learn different ways of understanding, you know, adult world like phonics, which I still don't really know what they are. It sounds like a band. But I had to write every week with this guy, Bob Flanagan, my educational therapist, like letters and words in the sand, a little sand tray, like a TV tray. And I'd write in the sand to try and get my brain to understand different ways of processing letters. And I had like this, this called the Linda mood system. It's a different way of trying to wire a dyslexic brain to understand information in a different way. So I'd go through all these really, really crazy kind of, um, I don't want to say experimental, but outside the box ways of trying to educate someone. It's funny because it may be why my brain is so different now than it was before. So I went to educational therapy. I had regular therapy. I had all of these people who were outside of class working on making sure I stayed stable and also learning at different levels. So for a guy who didn't like school, I had a lot of school outside of school and I had tutors and all that stuff. 
because it was so hard for me to do that. And then when I wasn't studying that, I was studying comedy, not knowing it. That sounds lofty. I just loved The Simpsons and I loved hearing anything that had jokes in it. And The Simpsons was the best because, I don't know, it just appealed to me in a way that nothing else did. I liked the randomness. I liked the, it was this organized chaos. You know, it was almost like a stand-up routine that went on for years. And there was a reward for those of you who watched it continuously, right? So the more you got to know the show, the more the jokes would be relevant to you. And I couldn't watch it, but I got to listen to it. And then eventually, as Gina said in the last episode, I got really used to books on tape and I got obsessed with that. And I took in a lot of information while I was running or just walking around on audio cassettes. So when I did my first stand-up routine, I was drawing from the 10,000 hours that Malcolm Gladwell would talk about that came out of the world where I had to focus on something to take myself out of where I was. And that focus was The Simpsons and the focus was movies. And I started practicing. So I'd start taking these jokes I learned and working on them with my friends, you know, workshopping didn't even. It's funny how all these names for things now make it seem like it's much more deliberate and profound than when I was a kid and I was just constantly trying to do jokes in front of people. And if there was ever a performance that was going on at school, I always had this competition in my head that I'm sure you had. That was do it, do it, do it, do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. You'll never do it. They're all going to laugh at you like Adam Sandler said in his tape. Oh, they're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. And I'm scared. But then even then when I was in grade school, the do it, do it, do it beat the scared because I was so much more scared of regret than I was the temporary pain of going up and doing it. I was the class clown. And I'd go out for all the plays. I was uh, <laughs> I was like a shepherd a bunch of times in the uh, in the Christmas play because I was I never went out for the king, you know, the three wise men in the other. Uh, there's this book about Jesus. And uh, it's really long. It, a lot of Judaism and Christianity is based on it. If you want to, it's called the Bible. Check it out. I played one of the wise men because he didn't have a speaking role. But I was always going out for that stuff because if I didn't, I'd get scared. But I really thought about after the um, stand-up how long ago this started and how doing it was a fulfillment of that. And when you hear that I've done comedy before, but this still felt like the real deal, I think a lot of it has to do with timing, the place I am in my sobriety, the knowledge of what I'm actually starting in my sincerity, the fact that I've been doing this podcast for as long as I have, and that I had never felt like it was time, uppercase T, to do something like I did then, after my grandfather died and got that tattoo on my arm. I wanted the tattoo on my arm louder and funnier so that I could never ignore what I knew I was supposed to do. And I still try and figure out why it's stand-up. You know? Stand-up was driving me absolutely crazy this week because I have to be funny on purpose, which I said is a violation of my understanding of comedy to me. So I have to come up with comedy and write comedy. And I've been doing this all week for hours and hours and hours. And I get so frustrated because then I become obsessed and I'll think, is then, the, or then going to be funnier in the context of this joke? right? Trying to write my first five and then my next 10. And that just overwhelms me because I become so just trapped in the weeds of what this is. And then I have to take a different perspective. And the only good thing is that I end up working out harder because I'm so frustrated with the process. And then I say to myself, 
well, stop this jet. This is ridiculous. This isn't for you. And it's only a brief second. It used to be much louder. But this isn't for you just like you used to say because stand-up bothers you because it is so much of this work side. And what you want to do is be funny by accident because then you're laughing with them or at least you're entertained. But then I realized, look at what the professional stand-up comedians get to do and they get to travel all over the country. They get to, again, adjust their routine to a way that makes them entertained wherever they go and it is a way to make money and make your living being funny so i have to eventually just say okay well this is the rules of the game and i'm going to play by their rules because i want to play and in the past the rebel in me which is so much more of a detriment more often than it used to be says no you do it your own way but i can't improv each week because then I'm not getting way better. I'm not going to have something that's nearly perfect. And it's just not the way it's done. That's not how I'm going to have a special. That's not how people are going to pitch me to someone else if they want me to do comedy. So there's a part of me that just realizes I have to submit to these rules. And why? Because I do. So that's a portion of what I've been struggling with this week. Is just knowing I just have to hit the notebooks and make this work. So my house right now looks like a madman's house because... uh I have notebooks everywhere and notes everywhere and post-its, but that's good because at least I'm doing work. I did want to talk to you, however, about where I left you off last week, and that was the day after my first public stand-up performance in a club. I had checked off the last thing on my mental bucket list of great fears. And that was another one of those massive tectonic shifts in my life that occurred. With all the death that's been going on in my family and friends over the last year, and then the forgiveness of this person who wronged myself and my wife to such an extreme degree last year at this exact time. When I forgave her per my grandfather's request to save what he considered the family in the structure that it is now, and I truly forgave her. I then went around and made amends with every person I thought I ever wronged, even if I thought they may have been the instigator. And that just opened up that hole in my chest. The same thing happened when I did this thing that I feared this long. I didn't just feel lighter. I felt like everything I do going forward is a bonus. Getting better in comedy, getting better at fitness, continuing to get better as a husband, working on my career, building our financial resources larger and larger, is all now bonus on top of the initial thing. Because breaking the ice time for Jet is over. I've done all those things I'm afraid of. I got married. That scared me. I jumped out of a plane because I was afraid of heights. I learned how to rock climb because I was afraid of heights. I ice picked up the side of Mount Whitney this last June to conquer that fear. I got over my psychosis. That was terrifying. I got sober and then I got sober minded. Six years I was sober the first time and I didn't have what I have now, which is coming up on two years. So I conquered that. I conquered overeating, moving out of my apartment into the tiny home situation we have with just 
an idea of where I wanted to be, a shovel, and hard work. All the things that I've wanted to conquer that are major have been conquered. And now I work on growing those things. You know, think of a kind of an iceberg, right? The bulk of the iceberg under the water is massive. It's just huge. It's 85% of the mass. And the tiny part that sticks out of the top is the success you see. I've built up that foundation when other people would have said, well, what's Jet up to? I don't see anything being done. But it was that foundational underwater, underground work I was doing that now the success seems so just evident. Oh, of course, he is this, he is that. But it didn't look like on the surface I was doing anything different than anyone else. But I've been working so hard on conquering these things and getting better at the things I wanted to do. And having the last one fall like it did. And this isn't just convenience. You've never heard me say this before. I'm not just saying this because it works for the narrative. This is something I've been telling Gina for years when I would conquer something I was afraid of. When I was auditioning for the first time 10 years ago, even as big as that was, we knew the big obstacle was going to be stand-up comedy. And I had it deliberately at the end. And I didn't know why until I did it. And now that's done. And then all of a sudden, different things started opening up. I get to go after these sectors that I've created that I want to work in the rest of my life. Stand-up comedy, film writing, directing, helping people get sober, helping people in general, life coaching, all that stuff. All of those things are now lined up, but I've done all the disciplines to get me there. And I'm done. I wish for you that feeling. Because imagine for a second and don't close your eyes because most of you guys are driving right now and that'd be very dangerous. That the biggest things you feared, write down 10 of them, you're done. And you can't emotionally imagine what it is I actually feel until you've done that last one. I guarantee you no matter what order you put this in, the toughest one's going to be at the end. So why does this matter, Jet? And I'm not going to go into any religious reason, spiritual reason, or if you want to call it the secret, it doesn't really matter. You crawled before you could walk. You mumbled before you could talk. This is not a Dr. Seuss Ryman all the time. And, but the purpose of this statement is that I think as an adult, at some point, we stop the inherent evolution of ourselves that we were meant to continue. And once you are done with being a kid, your parents no longer have the governor on what comes next. So after first grade comes sing along with me here, second grade, so on and so forth until you get to college. And once you get out of college, you're just supposed to get a job and repeat the process. However, I believe there's something else there, and that is to, just like going from crawling to walking, we are supposed to conquer different things in ourselves. But instead of having a parent tell us to do that, there's something in you that says this is next. And on that list, some of them may be way more important than others, you're going to find the things that you must then internally conquer. I've told you why I believe that is. I believe we are spiritual entities and we are making improvements or exercising parts of our, let's just call it personal energy to keep it really simple, through the only way that it can be done, which is on this planet as a human. Sounds a little crazy, right? But don't worry, I'm not high and I've been sober for two years, so can't be that crazy. You have these feelings, we all do, of what you need to do next. 
When I went up on stage, that was the conclusion of a hundred different things. When I first went on a date with Gina, we had known each other for a while. We went to the beach, Zuma Beach, and I told her there's two things I'll never do. I'll never get married because I don't want to ever get married. And I would never jump out of a plane. Just silly stuff. Those were the two things I was scared of. Yeah, I guess they're kind of like there's a metaphor for that too. They weren't right next to each other. The marriage thing was first. And then Gina and I were talking about what we would, what we were most afraid of, I guess, after that. I was putting out there that there were things I wouldn't do, right? But I did both those things. And a hundred different things to do the things I was most afraid of. What is the purpose of that? I'll answer your question with an action on your part. When you do one of these, you will understand. Any explanation I give further than that is going to be too much. But once you do one of these, just like a video game, which I never played, or a movie, or any story arc, the next part of your narrative unlocks. If you choose to. You don't have to do this. This is not necessary. This is if you choose to evolve as a human and have that next room opened. If you're curious, if you want to exercise that feeling in your chest, that thing on your mind. So in the next episode, I'm going to tell you about what happened after I was done with the comedy, after I conquered my last fear, and how an individual came into my life that I've never met, never known, and I ended up being a potential change agent in his life to maybe help him from overdosing on heroin. And that sounds crazy. It's a bit of a cliffhanger, but stay tuned and I will tell you how fate put me in the road of this guy who is coming to a critical decision in his life. I'm Jet Dunlap. This is Psychotherapy. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon.